Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be there in just a few moments, but I want to take your mind to that old story of, of a guy named Aladdin. I think he's the one who finds the lamp and rubs the lamp and out comes a genie, right? Uh, I want you to think about that for a moment. But before we even go there, I want to say to some of our teenagers, thank you for not wrapping my house last night. I know that it was on your minds. And God spared you incredible grief by encouraging you not to do that. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, back to Aladdin, all right? Um, (laughs) Aladdin finds a lamp, he rubs the lamp, and out comes a genie. And the genie says... I'll give you, what? Three wishes. Now, when I was a kid, we used to play the game of the three wishes, right? And so I want you to think about that for a second. What would your three wishes be? It was always true for me, and it was seemed to be true in the earlier service today also, that um, the first two wishes were always up for grabs depending on what was going on, but I always knew what the third wish was. What was that? Three more wishes. Now, you see how limited we are in our thinking? If you're going to wish for three more, why don't you just wish for unlimited wishes at that point? But whatever the case, I want you to think about that for a moment as we come to our discussion today on prayer. All right? Now, I know that some of you are thinking, man, we just talked about prayer all summer long. Are you going to go back there again? Yes, we are for another day. Because Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We get to Matthew chapter 7, and now Jesus is turning towards home in his sermon. All right? He has gone through the basic premise of it. The introduction, which was the Beatitudes, gives us the entire sermon in a nutshell form. After that, he gets to the thesis of it. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The thesis of the whole sermon. Everything hinges on that statement. And then he began to flesh it out for us. He talked about this surpassing righteousness Uh, as one that was deeper than what they were used to hearing. He said, you have heard that it was said, don't murder. But he said, I say to you, if you've had anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder, essentially. And then he says, you've heard that it was said, and you just go back through there, and you can see each one of those statements, these antitheses that he states, this is what you've heard, this is the deeper truth for you. As he's gone all the way through that now, we finished up a couple of weeks ago. By the way, I was gone last week. I'm glad to be home. Thank you for letting us come back. Um, Some of you were thinking that I was going back to Edinburgh to live. Sorry to disappoint you, but that's not the case. Okay. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, we got to that part of chapter 7 where Jesus says, Don't judge lest you be judged. And we talked around all of that. And so in the process, Jesus has been gradually moving us, building stuff around this central truth that we have to have this surpassing righteousness. And that was revolutionary for those first century hearers on that hillside. Matter of fact, it's revolutionary for us. Religion of our day says, do this, don't do that. Jesus takes it to the heart and he says, you have to be transformed from the inside out. And so now we come to this passage where he comes back to prayer. It's interesting. Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bibles there, let's go together. Matthew chapter 7, he comes to this and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek. And you'll find. Knock, 
And it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open. Now I want to stop there for just a second because those two verses that I just read are some of the most misused verses in the New Testament in my opinion. As a matter of fact, this week I was, of course the sermon was on my mind. I was processing information all week long and I'll talk about some of that as we go this morning. But Uh, I flipped on the television. I was on vacation through the week. We got back Sunday night, and then I took Lauren back to Huntsville on Monday, saw my parents came back. So the rest of the week, I I was just good for nothing. I'm really good at being good for nothing, for the record. But uh, So I was sitting around the house at one point, and uh, I flipped on the television. I was running through, trying to find the baseball playoffs, and uh, it went across one of these religious TV stations. I hate those. Just If you love them, that's fine. That's your business, okay? I hate those. Because I get mad when I watch them. And, uh, but as I was flipping through it, I saw this guy and I thought, I've, I've seen him before. And so I put on the guide thing to see what the name of the program was and I saw that. Well, in the time that it took me to do that, he said this. God wants you to be prosperous. And I thought, well, maybe it's better if I don't tell you what I thought. Other than, if I was buying... That would sell with me. But you see, there's a problem with what he says there. He uses passages like this one. As a matter, I was only on that thing for 10 seconds. God wants you to be prosperous, and all you have to do is ask him. Now, I don't want to show a hands or anything like that in here this morning, but my strong suspicion is a bunch of us have asked him for that. Here's a truth. That, that uncovers for us. And the way these two verses that I just read tend to play out for a lot of Christian people really presents a dilemma for us, a problem for us. When we approach God with those kinds of prayers, we inadvertently put the credibility of God on the hook with the people around us. Let me see if I can give you an example of that. Uh, it was sometime in the late 1990s. I don't remember the exact date. But I remember the exact location. I remember the circumstances of it because it made big headline news for several days. It was when a tornado went through a neighborhood of Moore, Oklahoma, just outside of Oklahoma City. The reason I remember that is because I had been there a month before that. A friend of mine was serving on a uh, church staff up in that area. He was, he's still one of my best friends in life, and uh, we went through college together, and that was back in the days when I was running. Now, since then, I've wisened up, and I don't do a whole lot of running anymore, but uh, in those days, I used to run a lot, and he was one of my running buddies through college. And so, I'd gone to his house. He lived in the neighborhood that the tornado devastated. And so, a month before this thing goes, and I start seeing this, you know, aftermath pictures on TV, I'm thinking, that looks like the general area where my friend lived and I was a month ago, but it's hard to tell because there's no landmarks anymore. And in that whole situation, there was a person, a lady, who, with her husband and two sons, when that tornado started into their area, they went into a closet in their house. When they stepped out after everything was finished, that closet was all that was left of their house. Everything was gone. News reporters pick up on that kind of stuff. 
And so they took her and they interviewed her and they said, so tell us about what it was like in the closet there when everything else was blowing up around you. She said, we went in and we prayed that God would watch over us through that. Now, one half of my Christian brain says, that's awesome. God took care of them. But the other half of my Christian brain says, wait a minute, what about the people... Let's say it this way. Do you think they're the only people in that whole neighborhood that was devastated that prayed that God would watch over them? Probably not. So what do you do with those prayers that the people around us know we pray and God doesn't answer them? I've been especially attuned to this over the last couple of weeks because... I've been working towards this sermon and I've been thinking through some of it and trying in a fresh way to connect down on the bottom shelf where our feet hit the ground every day. Sometimes we buy into some Christian notions that just don't stack up biblically and otherwise. And this tends to be one of them. Remember, in this sermon, Jesus said, you are salt of the earth, a light of the world. Your life is an example to those around you to draw people to Jesus Christ. So when I pray stuff that puts God on the hook, and then God doesn't come through, what does that communicate? Not just to me, because I can explain it away in my own theology. What does it communicate to those people around me? I'm uh, struck with the depth of pain in the human experience these days. I can look out here, and I've been here... 15, 16 months now, something like that. And I know enough of some of your family stories and your story to know that every time Crestwood Baptist Church comes together on a Sunday morning, there is an accumulation of pain. It's not that the pain is with each other, although that could have been true at some place, but all of us have life stories. Last week, back at the church in Edinburgh that we pastored for a while, you know, we, we go back in and it's a Friday night and a Saturday and a Sunday morning thing. And part of that is just, you know, it's, it's homecoming week. It's the 100th anniversary celebration. People from all time came back to that church. People who had gone there in the 50s were back. And uh, so I got a chance to see people I hadn't seen in a long time. And in the process of those discussions, one after another after another, I heard painful stories. A mother of an adult child saying, I just don't know how we can continue with this. I just wish God would finish it. That sound familiar to you? You ever have those prayers that grow out of your pain where you put God on the hook and say, God, you said in Matthew 7, ask and it'll be given. What kind of prayer does God answer? Along these lines. I can tell you, I'm experienced enough to know some of them, the way we pray them, God doesn't answer them the way we ask for them. And it looks like passages like this don't hold water. So either the scripture's wrong or there's something else for us to see. Let me just go ahead and settle that for you. Scripture's not wrong. All right. So there's something for us to see here, I think. What I want to do from the very outset, though, is to take us out of that TV evangelist mentality that says, if I want a Lexus, God, drive it into my driveway. By the way, I'd take one, God, if you're just giving them out. So what is Jesus getting at here? The tendency for many people 
is to take those two verses and let them stand alone. If you ask, God will give it. But what if he doesn't? So let's read on and see what he says. Verse 9, Jesus takes what he's just said, ask, seek, and knock. And by the way, just so that we're on the same page here, those are three statements that essentially mean the same thing. Okay? He takes from his Jewish background, he takes three words that are very strategically used by rabbis and in the Old Testament. Seek, it is an invitation to prayer. Ask, excuse me, ask is an invitation to prayer. Seek, always as it's used in the Old Testament here with this particular word in construction, ties it back to seeking wisdom, which is God's plan for them. The knocking is always, again, one of those things for prayer. Jesus uses these three things. He puts them there. He says, do these things. In other words, take it to God. And now he turns it. Because sometimes we don't ask uh, according to his plan or his will. And so he says in verse 9, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I just spent the better part of the last weekend with my middle son, my middle child, who's my second son. And yesterday, I spent some time yesterday evening with my oldest, who is my son, other son. I have two sons, Lawrence the third. Okay, so I've spent time with both boys. Now, I got to tell you, I'm the guy who would give my son a serpent. Okay, I just need to tell you that. All right, because I love to mess with my kids. All right. But what Jesus is saying here is not that practical joke kind of stuff. We were, we were being reminded. Uh, they're doing some work in my son's neighborhood in Conroe and uh, some pipe work. And so a toad, some kind of a frog, appeared magically in their toilet. And so we nearly had a grandbaby very early because of that. But it reminded us of a time with my oldest son. When he was probably, what, five years old, six, maybe, something like that. Uh, outside of our house down in the valley, uh, that day I'd been working outside, or mom or somebody had been, and found this toad, and it was huge. I mean, it was you know, bigger than my hand, and big and fat. You know, it was a toad's toad. Made the toad hall of fame, to be honest with you, okay? And so we decided this is a great thing for our young children to see. It's a nature lesson, so let's, we trotted them out there. Lauren was maybe a year old or two. Uh, so she didn't even remember this, but Brandon, my oldest, he remembered it. And he's making over it, and oh, that's real cool. You know, he's our science guy kind of guy. And, uh, but until, that was all great until that evening it became bath time, shower time to be exact for him. And he convinced himself, because the bathroom was, well, where the bathroom was right outside was where we'd seen that toad. He convinced himself that that toad was going to come up out of the drain into the shower. And so Brandon and I had a standoff. And I mean, he's grabbing stuff and legs are everywhere and I'm throwing him in there. And I'll promise you, he got a shower, but I did too when it was all said and done. Okay? Now, I was thinking about the reason I even bring that up today. I was thinking about it yesterday we were driving over to Conroe. I was thinking to myself, you know, it would have been easier for me to say to him, just go into our bathroom and use our shower. But you see, I wanted it to be a test of wills. It's me and him. And I'm going to win because I'm the dad. You know those fights, dad? Jesus is saying, if that's you, uh, you're wrong. 
He's using the example here, the good-natured part, the desire best for my children part of who we are as parents. And so when he says, ask, seek, knock, he follows it up with this basic example that says, all of us as parents, especially as dads, we want to do the best for our children. It doesn't have to be a standoff about stuff. Do what's best for them. But that's his example. And his example points us to verse 11, which is the principle now. Here's what drives this entire part of it. Verse 11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And there's the kernel that drives the whole thing. Ask, seek, Knock. For what? What is it that I'm supposed to ask for, Jesus? And his point is, well, I'm going to come to what we ask for, but his point before he even gets to that is, you know that you can take it to your Heavenly Father. So let me just stop right there for a second. Let's take that principle and let's just throw it out over the whole group this morning. And I want you to think for a moment what it is that you brought in here with you that you really would like God to do something about. Well, that's hard on us. I've been listening this last two weeks a little, a little more carefully to the prayer requests that we throw around. I find them on Facebook. I find them on our church uh, website. And I find them in conversations and all that kind of stuff. And I've had contact with two big churches over the last two weeks the people I know and love, and I'm struck with the pain that we carry around. Where is God in all of the pain? I know some people, I've mentioned one who's struggling in family relationship situation as somebody just self-destructs. I know others are going through incredible financial difficulties. I know others whose marriages are just in the process of exploding. I know some, myself included, dealing with parents who are going through very trying circumstances. Where is God in all of that? How can we pray in all of that stuff? One of the things that seems to be true for me is that prayer becomes almost a humanistic fix if we're not careful. Somebody comes and says, hey, I need you to pray for me. The typical response is, okay, I will. And we can turn away and walk away and say, okay, God, whatever that was, you know, help them out. Maybe we even know what it is. God, help them out with that. And we just turn and kind of walk away and waltz away from it and say, okay, I've done my deal there. And even praying for myself. Sometimes I just, Lord, I got this issue. And I need help with this. But in my mind, I'm convinced that I've done my humanistic thing because I've taken it to God. Now I go out and fix it myself. What is he saying? Ask, seek, knock. You notice that none of those have objects. I'll take you to English grammar for a second. None of those three imperatives have an object to them. Ask for what? Does that leave the door open? Maybe the the TV preacher's right. No. 
In this case, as I said when I first started, Jesus now is turning to the home stretch in this sermon. And what he's saying to his disciples is, I have laid out for you a seemingly hopeless standard in life. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. Hey, I'm off the hook on that. I've never murdered anybody. I wanted to. How about you? Yes? I'm going to be honest. Are y'all even there today? Hello? Okay, I've never murdered anybody, but I thought about it, and Jesus says, Aha! So you have murdered. No, you're not listening. I haven't. I wanted to. Aha! So you have. You see, Jesus raises the stakes for us here. The standard goes higher. And by this time in the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples are going, Really? How am I going to do that? Let me tell you just how this hits me. I told you before, I'm a recovering angerholic. And there have been times in my life I really struggled with controlling anger. Actually, I didn't struggle with it at all. I didn't try to control it. I just let it go. That's how most angerholics are. But here, here's how it played out for me in a, in a really formative time of my life. I was going through, I was really trying to walk with the Lord. I was a minister already working with teenagers. Actually, I think I was even finished with teenager work by this time. I was an associate pastor in the church. And uh, one of the things that happened is um, I had this guy. His daughter was in a college Bible study that Teresa and I did at our house uh, on a weeknight every week. And so we developed relationships with these college kids. And uh, this girl started telling me about her dad who was going through a really bad divorce. And it was just devastating him. He had no church background, no, he was not a Christian. Uh, and so it was, it was a tough thing. And so through the course of that, I started talking to him and we would talk on the phone. He'd come in, I'd counsel with him. And uh, so for an extended period of time, I was dealing with him uh, and really trying to help him find the Lord first, but then find peace in his marriage and everything to work out. And a lot of times those discussions happened over the phone. And uh, it was not unusual at all for him to call me late in the evenings and we'd talk, you know, an hour or so. So with that in mind, um, at the same time, somebody started this string of stuff they had with us for a long time, a number of days, even weeks, if I remember right, where in the middle of the night, about 2 o'clock, they would call our house. And this was in the days before cell phones. Uh, we did have cars, but not cell phones. Uh, and so they would call in the middle of the night. I'd get up and I'd answer the phone. As soon as I'd answer the phone, they would hang up. Now, the first time that happened, it bothered me. The second time it happened, it made me mad. third time it happened, I was mad right now. You know what I mean by that? Mad, mad. So I started scheming how I would deal with this person if I ever found out who they were. Okay? Not a very godly approach, just to be honest with you. The deal is, when I, especially in those days, wake me up in the middle of the night, I couldn't go back to sleep. I'd start thinking about work or other stuff, and so I'd be up the rest of the night. So I was going every night with just two or three hours of sleep. I was getting tired, which means I was less inclined to be spiritually minded. I get a phone call, and, well, anyway, so you get that picture. So I was talking to somebody about it at church one day, and they said, you know that there's new thing with a phone company that you can dial star... And two numbers. I don't even remember what they were. Star 60, what? Seven. All right. <laughs> you see who told me that, right? Keep that in mind. Oh, by the way, this was also the days before caller ID. 
So you can dial star 67, according to our teenagers, and I believe them. And it'll call back the number that just called you. And I thought, aha, we have a winner. And I determined the next time that happened, I was going to call them back. And I was going to give them a very direct word from the Lord. So sure enough, that night, 2 o'clock, the phone rings. I was waiting this time. And I picked that phone up and I said, I don't know who you are. That's all I can tell you what I said. Okay, I said more. That's all I can share in here. I went off on these people. Excuse me. Take that. Let me me finish. I answered it. They hung up. I did the star, star 67 and then I went off on them. Okay? Except... What I didn't realize... See, when they answered the phone, they sounded asleep. And I thought, that's weird. But it didn't matter because I already determined what I was going to say to them. And I went off on them. When I finished my tirade, the person on the other side of the phone said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. My daughter's in college. Maybe she called you by accident. And I recognized the voice to be the guy that I'd been counseling with. See, I didn't realize if you hit the wrong two numbers, it dials back the number you called last. So I called him in the middle of the night, woke him up, because I had also called him earlier in the day to talk to him about something. So see what I'm getting at? And so the first thing when I hung up the phone was God said to me, that passage of Scripture that says, for the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's hard being an angerholic, just for the record. So I got up early. Didn't sleep the rest of the night. Got up, got dressed, went over, and I waited outside this man's house for him to go to work so that I could face-to-face apologize to him for my mistake. And Jesus says, you've heard that it said don't commit murder, but I say to you, if you have anger, if you've said you fool to somebody, I said more than that to him. What I want you to get from all of that is, on a real-life level, the stuff that Jesus has said to us in this Sermon on the Mount as the standard for us, any Christian in their right mind reads that and says, Oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? You know, that's so true that there's a whole school of people out there, scholars, who take this and they say of this whole Sermon on the Mount, he can't be talking to us today because it's an impossible standard. He must be talking about what life's going to be after Jesus comes back. Well, you know what? That's convenient because it lets you off the hook. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook on this. This is my standard, he says. And so in my right mind, I go, I can't do that, Lord. By the way, that takes me back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt who realize they can't get there. And so now Jesus in the home stretch of this Sermon on the Mount says to us, the things that you've heard in this sermon that trouble you today, take them to God who knows what's good. He knows what you need. You might ask him for something that you don't need, but he's going to give you what's right. You see, this whole thing centers on how you define good in those last couple of verses. Verse uh, 9 again, Or which one of you, if his son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? What is good? Who gets to determine what's good? God does. So what Jesus is saying, here's the whole sermon when you just pull it all right down. Today's sermon. Jesus saying to us, his disciples, holding in our hands this piece of work that none of us live up to. You may not be an angerholic. You may be a lustaholic. You got your problems. And if you, and if you get all of those things right, you still got your problems. And God says, if you just come to me with that stuff, I'll give you good stuff. I'll help you with that. I'm not sure what it is that God is doing with me these days. Uh, on one side, I like it. On the other side, I don't. <laughs> That's usually how it is with God because he always takes me places I don't really want to go. And then I get there and go, wow, this is better. Um, but um, this idea of seeing people in their pain is very real for me these days. And I stand here. I mean, you have to, you know, I got the best seat in the house here. You have to sit there and look at me. I could stand up here and look at all of you, okay? But in the process of doing that, I see and I know the pain of many of our lives. And that, that hurts. And it ought to hurt us when we hurt as a body. Isn't it good to know that you can take those things to God and I as a pastor can take you in the quiet of my office, or usually I come back here to that room in the back corner and when it's all quiet over here and I can just sit back there and your faces come to my mind and I can pray for you. Life hurts. And when we get together here, we're not a bunch of people who got it all figured out and the, the museum for saintly people if that's what this is, you've got the wrong pastor. I can tell you that. We come together as hurting people. And one of the greatest privileges we have is to pray for one another. But so often our prayers for one another gets reduced down. Instead of saying, Lord, these people, do your best for them. Instead of that prayer, we come and say, well, you know, my elbow got a little crick in it. Lord, I, I need you to make my elbow feel better. And we cheapen prayer with that. I have a new favorite preacher. I already told you I don't like watching him on TV. Uh, I have a new favorite preacher. For years, my favorite preacher was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Uh, and I've had some others before that. But my new favorite preacher is, actually, it's a group of guys, but 10th Avenue North. You know their music? Let me tell you something. Some of the deepest... Christian truths that I hear being put out these days comes from the lyrics of those guys' music. Their newest album dropped last month, if I remember right. Here's the words of one of the songs. Now, Spencer's going to play this song when we dismiss today. I want you to listen to the lyrics. See if this doesn't fit 
you today. And if it doesn't fit you today, it probably fits somebody sitting close to you today. I'm tired. I'm worn. W-O-R-N. My heart is heavy. I'll finish that the right way. My heart is heavy from the work that it takes to keep on breathing. You ever feel that way? I've made mistakes. I've let my hope fail. My soul feels crushed by the weight of the world. And I know that you can give me rest. So I cry out with all that I have left. Let me see redemption win. Let me know the struggle ends. That you can mend a heart that's frail and torn. I want to know the sun can rise from the ashes of a broken life. And all that's dead inside can be reborn. You ever feel that way? Jesus says, when you feel that way, ask. Seek. And knock. And the Father who gives good gifts will respond. I'm convicted as a church leader that perhaps we church leaders through the last, well, my generation, have shortchanged the people of God by holding up a weak model of what church could be instead of living what church should be. And Jesus says, if that's you, ask. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Eyes closed for a few moments. This message ought to hit every one of us somehow. It may very well be that you're the one in here, and those words to that song are yours. You're worn, you're tired. The fight that it takes just to breathe, you wonder if it's worth it. Let me tell you something. That prayer that this song represents is the one that Jesus always answers in the affirmative. I love you. He may not give me a Lexus, but he'll always respond to my prayer for help when my soul is tired. So how is it with you and your God today? You get tired of all the trappings of church and know that there's got to be something real out there but can't really put your finger on what it is. Father, we ask you today to do a work in our lives. All pretense aside, all of the got to show good for church aside, give us the grace today to come before you in pain, in honesty, and seek your face. A lot of people this morning, I'm sure even listening online, a lot of people desperately need to know that you have not given up on them. So have your way with us is our prayer in Jesus' name.